Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garnett. It's Thursday, October 26th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. This week's massive cancer conference in Europe was a star turn for a decades-old technology that is having a moment. Our colleague Andrew Joseph joins us to explain the rise of ADCs. We'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including the future of Alzheimer's disease treatment, a multi-billion dollar deal, and the return of the biotech mega round. All that after a word from our sponsor. Tori Bosch, editor of Stats First Opinion column and host of the First Opinion podcast. And I'm Jesse McQuarters, editor of Stat Brand Studio. We're excited that Stat is launching a brand new community only for our subscribers called Stat Plus Connect. It's an online home for discussion, news, job postings, workshops, and more, all centered around the life sciences and biomedical research. It's also a chance to peek behind the curtain at Stat and interact with our writers and staff. The people that really bring our great journalism and content to you every day. And in fact, I made a course on how to crack first opinion. I lay out the kinds of essays I'm looking for, my editorial process, some writing tips, and much more. And I actually made one about Stat Brand Studio, sharing a little bit about what the heck a brand studio is in the first place, but also some of the things we do to bring the content of our marketing partners to life. You know, it sounds like I'm going to have to hop on to take your course. And Tori, yours sounds amazing. So I'm going to definitely check out yours at connect.statnews.com. Well, fantastic. I'll see you on Stat Plus Connect. So, Adam, you know, during last week's live taping, which, you know, if you all haven't listened to it, you should pause this week's episode, go back and listen to our live taping from Stat Summit. Um, I started to ask you about your short list for best and worst biotech CEO, you know, we're, we're in Q4. Uh, who is, who's on your short list? It sounds like we had a little development this week. Before we get to that, can I just say that I'm very happy to be recording the podcast again <laughs> from the cozy confines <laughs> of my uh, office, home office slash recording studio. So just, just wanted to put that out there. Uh, um, yeah, Allison, you know, you're right. I put together this list of uh, best biotech CEOs every year. I also put together a list of worst CEOs. Uh, and uh, Roy Vant, Sciences CEO, Matt Klein, uh, I think he's, he's, a, he's a strong contender this year. And, and that's because of a deal that he helped to architect this week, uh, selling a drug uh, that the company has been developing to Roche for, uh, you know, well, $7 billion deal, headline deal, uh, Roy Vant will get about $5 billion of that. The rest goes to Pfizer, who has some rights to it. But uh, a pretty phenomenal deal, given the fact that, as I mentioned in a column this week, uh, you know, basically Glein created $5 billion in cash from essentially $50 million. Uh, you know, uh, late last year, they, they, they acquired this drug uh, from Pfizer uh, and then kind of created a sort of a new company around it and, and basically in all invested about $50 million in that. So like, you know, in less than a year, turning $50 million into $5 billion is a, uh, it's a pretty nice return. The math on this deal was incredible. It was truly <laughs> mind boggling. Um, and uh, was so, I mean, it's also kind of so rare often in, in biotech that you have those, I mean, 
those level of returns and from what was a, I mean, a relatively modest in today's day and age, you know, kind of starting financing point. I mean, just this week, I, you know, wrote about a $245 million Series A round. So, you know, starting off a company, $50 million and then selling it for, you know, $5 billion, nice chunk of change. But yet, Roy Van Stock went down, which was kind of the, the flip side of the story, right, Damon? It was, you know, we were like, we we're just like, woo, Matt Klein, CEO of the year, what a deal. And then you look at the stock and it's down like 10, 11%. Yeah, that is kind of the cruelty of, I guess, being in biotech, both in a down market and also just in general, which is that the prospect of any given company being acquired is so integral to its stock value. It's something that we've heard uh, Jared Holes was on this podcast kind of bemoaning this, like the takeout thesis being this kind of like singular focus among investors, especially when stocks are down in general, that while yes, the mathematics of this deal, the speed at which it was, or at which this value was created, et cetera, these are all recommendations of Royvent um, and also, you know, an affirmation of the founding ethos of the company dating back to former CEO and chairman, now presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. The whole idea was that the company would find gems in the pipelines of generally larger pharmaceutical firms, develop them, see value where others didn't, and then you know actualize that value in some way. Usually that takes a number of years. The fact that this took place, I think, in less than 12 months is kind of staggering. But at the same time, while that's a recommendation of Royvent, if you look at this through the singular focus of how likely is Royvent to get acquired the day before this deal and the day after this deal, the fact that they parted with this asset means probably they are less likely to get acquired. And as such, the stock went down by uh, you know hundreds of millions of dollars in value to where Royvet's actual market value is just a little bit above the amount of cash that they will make in this deal, which I, I mean, it just... Very like sign of the times. I don't think it's something that Royvent will be down about. They obviously have long-term plans. I'm sure they're not terribly worried about the immediate stock price. Um, but as a snapshot for like how biotech works in 2023, um, you really can't get clearer than that instance. It's hard to kind of parse through like what this deal means to to Damien's point, kind of for the the future prospects of Royvent. It, it kind of comes off to me as like the equivalent of, I don't know if anybody here is like ever gone to like walked into a Goodwill, happened to find, you know, a cast off designer item that like somebody threw away and then goes and sells it on eBay for, you know, you know, six times the price, that's that's just kind of being in the right place at the right time. You know, what is I, I don't know that this deal really says anything about Roy Vant as a as a whole. What could possibly have happened, you know, in less than a year? How could they have possibly developed this product that they had licensed from Pfizer uh, substantially? How much work could have well, I think, really been I think done? one of the things I think one of the things it does say is, you know, is that they, you know, they did a really good job of of identifying an asset, uh, a drug that was probably undervalued, uh, maybe you know, undervalued by Pfizer in this case, and and they were able to spin that into you know into a lot more. Um, you know, they were certainly helped by uh, you know the, the this is a this is a type of drug that uh, treats inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, a similar drug with a similar mechanism was acquired, or a company that was developing a similar drug was acquired by Merck, which obviously boosted sort of the, you know, lifted the entire class of these drugs. So that helped, and, you know, so that was sort of a lucky, uh, that was lucky for Roy Van. But, uh, you know, just getting back to another point you made, Damien, and, you know, we can segue into kind of a broader look, but, you know, I think part of this, part of the downturn in the stock after this was just, you know, biotech sentiment. It's really bad 
right now, uh, you know, the market is awful for biotech. So I think that contributes uh, contributed to to what we saw with Roy Van. But uh, you know, Damon, you were looking you were looking at the you know overall market, and I mean, you know, it's been topsy turvy this year. But man, we are we are really kind of it's just in the free fall at the moment. Yeah, so the, the XBI, a commonly watched index of biotech stocks, hit its low for the year uh, earlier this week and you know maybe more dramatically hit its lowest point since 2018. So it's sort of like back into the last biotech slump before the uh, you know now understood to be inflated valuations that came to the industry around the COVID-19 pandemic. But it, it's one of those things where you kind of run out of ways to describe just how dark things are with respect to sentiment for for biotech companies and the difficulty i think for people even grasping at hope because of macro environment issues interest rates just generally risky stocks being out of favor with the generalist investors who kind of pull the strings on how the market works and that very much applies to and affects biotech and and there are so many examples of uh, somewhat one of these, but where when bad news happens, it is that much worse for biotech companies. There's a company called Acaro Therapeutics, I think we talked about, had um, disappointing data for a Nash drug. And on the day, that led to their stock falling about 60%. But I checked, and it has since fallen another 30% uh, in in step, basically, with the broader biotech market for reasons of just like bad vibes, because the company hasn't had any news since then. And, and that's just one example. I think there are many of everything just kind of seeming to circle the drain. Meanwhile, we're told consistently by people, especially um, in the venture capital world, that everyone is optimistic about 2024 and that we're likely to see um, a boost in IPOs in 2024. And I do wonder whether that is because the sentiment is actually projected to improve or if it's just because a lot of private companies are looking at their balance sheets or rather the VCs uh, who sit on their boards are looking at their balance sheets and saying, if we don't force this out onto the public market soon, it may never happen. So yeah, stocks are down and people are still optimistic or or maybe they're just in denial. But um, at the same time, Allison, there have been a lot of VC deals recently. Yes, there have been a lot of VC deals just in this last week. I'm going to I'm going to throw some numbers at you guys. Ready for this? Uh Sofanova Partners, the longtime European biotech investor just raised a $200 million fund. Uh Revelation Partners just raised a $608 million fund. Um the fund that originally had I think about a $500 million goal, so they way exceeded that. And then Orbamed just closed billion um, across three new funds in this last week. So there is still dry powder being, you know, kind of funneled into and collected in the the biotech and kind of larger healthcare investing space on the private side. Um, It is this, I mean, whether we call it a log jam, whether we call it a, a desert, whatever is happening, like in between <laughs> your like series A investments and, you know, the, the stock market that is really where the industry is, is, is hurting this year. It does seem like a disconnect though, doesn't it? You know, yeah. you have the public markets that are really hurting and on the private side, you have all this money being raised. I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe we should have somebody on to help us explain that. Or, or Allison and Damon, I don't know if you guys have like any insight into so because it does feel weird, right? That there is this disconnect between yeah. those well, two sides. I think one of the the 
trends that we've seen this year. I mean, kind of, you know, I mentioned earlier this $245 million uh, Series A that that came out this year for a new company um, that is focused on asthma. They have an asthma product that they've in-licensed from a Chinese pharmaceutical company. Um, the company is called Ilos. Uh, that is the example of what, uh, you know, many people in the, the startup world are pointing to as, you know, uh, a consolidation among VCs who like do have dry powder, but the risk is so high in biotech right now that they end up they're they're putting in these big mega rounds into just a few companies. I mean, this this year we've had quite a few early stage investments that have been, uh, you know, uh, well above a hundred million dollars for a Series A, which is not something that you know you saw much in 2018 and 2019. Um, that companies, you know, investors, because of their wariness, because of the the turmoil of the market are funneling more money into companies that they are co-founding, they are kind of creating, uh, you know, around in-licensed products, as was the case with uh, ILOS, and can kind of hopefully kind of control and steer more into greener pastures. I think that's the hope. We'll, you know, knock on wood. We'll see. Um, but that's, I mean, I think one way that this is all playing out in the startup world. Yeah, I thought reading your story about the ILOS deal that it was, I mean, it's just one example, but as you said, it was a very large amount of money, but in this case for an in-licensed clinical stage drug that has the same target as an approved drug, it just offers um, basically if it works out more convenient dosing and thus might be a better product. That felt like kind of a telling sign of the times in that Three years ago, a $245 million deal would go to some science project company with a platform to reprogram cells that do whatever. And we hope to be in the clinic before 2034 or whatever. <laughs> we saw so many things like that. And so it's, it's definitely a good sign for the industry that the money is still moving around. But it's probably telling that a company with the phenotype of ILOS is who's getting these big checks rather than a company the phenotype of like sauna biotechnology or some of the you know high profile startups of yesteryear which i just don't think that kind of thing is moving the needle in 2023 uh with the market being what it is no i think a lot of investors have kind of uh, you know soured on uh so-called uh platform plays you know these companies that have like a big as you said damien kind of science project that they're developing and will spend many, many, many years before they get to the clinic. I mean, isn't everybody at this point kind of bemoaning the lack of, you know, clinical stage biotechs, you know, that are out there with with news that can, you know, kind of be announced on the stock market and be used as uh, hopefully uh, upsides? Oh, you know, it wasn't exactly the case for Akiro and, and many others this year, but, uh, you know, with exciting clinical trial data and that's that's been another thing that has been bemoaned i think a lot in the startup world is this lack of of clinical stage companies and this oversupply of science projects changing gears this week boston was the site of the annual alzheimer's conference known as ctad i think it's clinical trials in alzheimer's disease um, which was not as splashy as last year's incarnation in San Francisco, which is where we got the detailed data for the Alzheimer's drug that became Lakembi from ASI and Biogen. But there was still plenty to talk about in terms of the sort of, I don't know, post-Lakembi future of treating Alzheimer's disease. Adam, what happened? 
Yeah. First, I'll say my sort of general takeaway is that the CTAD meeting in Boston this year was packed. Uh, I was down there all day on Wednesday, and the, you know it's it's held at a hotel downtown, and it was really crowded. And I think that is testament to the fact that you know we now have uh, an approved drug, an antibody, uh, amyloid antibody. Uh, you know, one obviously on the way from Lilly, and um, so you know it, it was interesting. It was noteworthy to me that the, the room was just it was a standing room only pretty much most of the day. Um, you know, probably the big news out of the meeting, Damien Allison was. Uh, was uh, about Lakembi, which, uh, as you mentioned, is the approved Alzheimer's treatment from ASI and Biogen. They revealed some data on Wednesday night for a subcutaneous or an under-the-skin injection formulation of Lakembi. You know, right now, that is a drug that's given um, by intravenous infusion uh, twice a month. So obviously, uh, a sub-Q or subcutaneous uh, injection would be a lot more convenient. And um, the good news is, is that it looks like the uh, the subcutaneous injection form of Lakembi uh, is equally as effective as the IV form, which is what uh, ASI set out to show with the data. Um, it was interesting that um, the rates of ARIA, which is you know that side effect that we spend a lot of time discussing when we talk about Alzheimer's drugs, That's yeah. those are the brain swelling and brain bleeds. The, the rates of ARIA for the sub-Q version of the chemi were a little bit higher than they were for IV. And, and that was interesting. Um, because, you know, ASI had done a bunch of modeling, looking at sort of blood levels, and they actually had hoped and thought that uh, that the under-the-skin version of Lakembi would actually result in fewer or lower rates of ARIA. It actually came out the other way. Um, it's It remains to be seen whether that's a problem or not. Um, you know, we talked to the, the, the kind of, just talking to physicians down at the meeting, they, first of all, overall, they were really excited about sub-Q, just because obviously an IV is very cumbersome, you know, having an IV infusion twice a month is even more cumbersome. So just the idea of, of being able to, uh, for, for, for a patient, they can treat themselves at home with a, with, you know, with an auto, one of those auto injector pens. Um, so that, I think that was a lot of excitement of that. And they think that that would help, um, you know, uh, increase access to this drug, you know, whether or not, you know, these drugs, because of the ARIA side effect, you know, the patients have to be monitored pretty closely to make sure that they're they're not, you know, if they do uh, if they do have you know symptoms from brain swelling or or small bleeds in the brain, and so you know there was maybe some theoretical concern that if patients are treating themselves at home, that you know maybe they're not going to be as closely monitored. Um, but we'll have to see. Uh, you know, ASI is going to file this subcutaneous version of the Kembi with the FDA. Uh, I think March of next year. So we'll, we'll probably, you know, it's likely to be approved and, and that would come towards the end of uh, 2024. Physicians, scientists, and drug makers have spent the past week in Madrid, Spain, sharing the latest data on cancer drug development and treatment at the 2023 annual meeting of the European Society of Medical Oncology. The stars of this year's ESMO were a class of medicines called antibody drug conjugates, or ADCs. They're actually a fairly old approach to targeting and killing cancer cells, but more recent refinements in how ADCs are constructed has led to improved outcomes for cancer patients and a lot more commercial success for the companies that develop and market them. ADCs were also the centerpiece of a $22 billion partnership between Merck and Daiichi Sankyo that was announced right at the start of the ESMO meeting this year. 
Our colleague Drew Joseph was also on hand at ESMO, and he joins us now to discuss the most buzzy drug class in cancer. Drew, welcome back to Read Out Loud. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Drew, before we get to the highlights from the ESMO meeting, uh, let's step back and explain ADCs. What are they? Yeah, so as you said, they're called antibody drug conjugates, and they're kind of, I guess, an obvious concept, or at least it's an obvious goal, um, because the fact remains that despite all these futuristic cancer treatments that we have or that are in development, like immunotherapies and or mRNA or what what have you, you know, chemotherapy like remains a backbone of a lot of cancer care because it's just really good at killing um, fast dividing fast dividing cells. Excuse me. Um, but also, I think everyone knows that going through chemo is just like pretty brutal. And so the idea of an ADC is basically can deliver chemo directly to the tumor, sort of. So you still pack that chemo punch, but, you know, minimize the toxicity of it. So as you read in your story, as we mentioned earlier, at ESMO this year, it was something of a star turn for modern day ADCs. What were the highlights from the conference? I mean, there was a, there was sort of like a general... ADC vibe for lack of a better description. Like, I mean, it was just, it just like came up in a lot of conversations. There were a lot of presentations, like obviously the financial deal, the licensing deals were announced, like sort of right as the, the conference was kicking off. But um, just sort of everyone was talking about ADCs, uh, whether it's, you know, preclinical work or there were some pivotal trials presented or even, you know, additional studies of approved ADCs. Um, to, you know, I guess to give one specific example, one of the big presentations um, focused on an ADC from Sejan and Estellas called PADSEV, I believe. I'm sorry if that is incorrect. Um, oh, we can, also, we can totally get into the name, drug name pronunciation yeah, game again. Yeah, this is well-trod well territory, Drew. <laughs> so anyways, they combined PADSEV um, with Keytruda and that combo essentially cut the risk of death in half in a certain bladder cancer. And so, you know, that's a huge result, like really strong um, outcomes. And it was pretty much universally described as practice changing. And so um, that was that was one example where it sort of showed the, I don't know, it was sort of like uh, meeting its potential, in, in, at least in that case. And Drew, I, I believe that presentation, that Patsev presentation, uh, drew a uh, standing ovation from the audience, right? It, it did. It sure did. It's like the Paul Hollywood handshake of uh, <laughs> nice, nice cultural reference, Adam. <laughs> I just started watching Bake Off for the first time, and so I actually do get that reference. I'm enjoying it very much. Drew, you live in Europe yet? Now you need to you need to get on board. <laughs> exactly. But, so uh, you know, ADCs had this kind of bell of the ball moment, but as we noted in the intro, it's actually an old approach to targeting cancer cells. Talk to us about the the improvements that are being made to the technology that have led to this moment where, you know, they can kind of have their little glittering moment in in the spotlight. You know, people or drug companies, researchers have been working on ADCs for, for decades, truly. And so basically, it's like a lot of chemical improvements that have been made, um, you know, going back maybe 10 years that have kind of enabled um, next generation ADCs to now be reaching patients. And so ADCs are made up of a couple components. Um, and there's been progress in all these. There's the payload, basically the chemotherapy. There's the antibody that guides this, this like thing to tumor cells. And then um, there's another thing called a linker. And that basically connects the chemo to the antibody. And it's really apparently uh, sort of 
these improvements in linker design that have started to really pay off. And so basically you want your linker to be sort of loose enough so that the chemo doesn't just kill the tumor cells with the specific target, but kind of sweeps up some of the other surrounding cells. And that's called the bystander effect. So you basically just want the chemo to make sure it's kind of getting all the cancer. But at the same time, you want to kind of keep some control over the chemo so it doesn't just sort of escape into the rest of the body. And then you have all these systemic toxicities as well. And so apparently they've sort of, sort of over the years, through chemical tweaks and able to sort of, I guess, get this like Goldilocks linker in place. So guys, I have a trivia question. Who on this podcast knows the name of the first approved ADC and (laughs) when that drug was approved? Anyone here know? Don't Google it. Give me an answer. (laughs) I'm not going to guess because I despise drug names and pronouncing them. (laughs) So as we've established. (laughs) I don't recall the name of it. No, no. I think it was Come around on, 2001, and I remember Ooh. this because wasn't it later pulled from the market because it kind of didn't you're work? You're getting warm. Oh. Yes, oh. Damien, you're getting warm. <laughs> so uh, it, is, it, it is a drug called Milotarg. It was approved for a form of blood cancer in 2000. So Damien, you were close. Okay. It was pulled off the market, Damien, you're correct, uh, because of toxicities. I think actually some of the toxicities... Uh, that that the Drew you alluded to, you know, this was just kind of the this was the first ADC uh, that linker probably wasn't all that great, and yeah, there was a lot of toxicity. So it was pulled off of the market. It actually ended up getting put back on the market. Um, this was a drug developed by the pharmaceutical company Wyeth, which was later acquired by. Pfizer. So that is your trivia portion of today's <laughs> wow. Read Out Loud. Good to have that institutional knowledge. Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> yes, yeah, because I'm old enough to remember that. <laughs> In the ensuing two decades uh, since that event, better ADCs, the sort of honing of the of the technology that you referred to, Drew, have led to a lot more licensing deals in biotech and pharma. According to the investment bank Cowan, um, which put together these numbers, there have been 41 ADC-related transactions, whether acquisitions or partnerships, already in 2023, which is more than the 40 in all of 2022 and 17 in the year before that. So on that subject, Drew, you mentioned that the conference began with news of such transactions. Uh, what were those? Yeah, so the big one was obviously Merck um, reaching a deal with Daiichi um, for up to $22 billion. Um, And, you know, Daiichi is kind of a big player in this area. They already worked with AstraZeneca on a couple ADCs. Um, GSK also announced a licensing agreement. Um, much smaller one, but still. Um, and then, you know, I think Eli Lilly has sort of, I, I guess, acquired some companies working on ADCs. And then this goes back to earlier this year, but obviously a big deal was when, uh, and Adam, I believe you covered this, Pfizer said it was going to buy Seagen uh, for, what, like $43 billion or something like that. Yeah, yeah, um, big deal. And, yeah, in large part because of Seagen. Seagen is an ADC specialist as well, and so they were sort of adding those drugs in addition to the rest of Seagen's products into its pipeline. Mm. Well, a recent paper on the history of ADCs uh, published in the journal MABS, short for monoclonal antibodies, uh, noted that in you know the uh, 23 years since Mylotarg's approval, only 12 or so of the 267 clinically tested ADCs have actually made it to approval. And, and just 10 of those have been in the last six years. So was there also a bit of a reality check for ADCs at ESMO, Drew? Yeah, I mean, I think, Allison, the the numbers that you cite show sort of the 
I guess, momentum that's happening um, in recent years. But yeah, I mean, like with any new technology, it's not going to be totally smooth sailing. Um, and so one of the big studies was, a, a, or one of the big presentations rather, was one focused on a compound called Data ODXD, which is from AstraZeneca and Daiichi. Um, and there were some pretty good results um, comparing it to chemo and breast cancer. But when it was compared to chemo and a type of lung cancer, the ADC like barely outperformed um, just regular chemo in terms of median progression for survival. The study was technically positive. It hit its you know, statistical endpoint. And there was a subgroup of patients who seemed to like really have benefits that everyone was focused on and said, okay, maybe this will just, we'll just kind of focus on the subgroup of patients. But it was kind of this moment of like, oh, like, you know, maybe not in every case, these are going to like way outperform chemo or something like that. And so um, it was sort of like a, you know, someone referred to one of the discussants of the paper referred to it as like the big elephant in the room. It's like, are we really, are, you know, is the potential of these really going to be realized or like, how can we ensure that we um, are using them in the right patients or, you know, really maximizing the ben the potential benefits of these? So I think, you know, for all the excitement and obviously for all the money going into them, like there's still a lot of work to be done. And, you know, I'm sure there will be stumbles along the way. Drew, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether getting a Paul Hollywood handshake is on your bucket list. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.